We've been going through and trying to come back to basics. We figured in this new place it would be a good thing to do, to come back to the basics. What are the foundational principles that, that we, at the effect, have been adhering to for the last 10 years? What animates us? What, what uh, gives us any distinction, if there is distinction, between us and, and other followers of Jesus? And it's been an interesting kind of last few weeks. And um, we've been talking primarily about the Father's love because there's nothing more foundational or basic than that. But I was just praying earlier that this, this notion of the Father's love as something that is a, the default position of the universe, if you will. It's what brought everything into existence and what sustains it. Rather than looking at it as human love, something that can be turned on and off, it self-exists. It is what it is. And we can enter into it or not. That change alone, that mindset flip alone, if you can get there and the only way you can is experientially, everything changes. Everything changes about your attitude toward life, the, 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 the way that you make decisions, the quality of your relationships, your ability to relax you know, and, and not live in fear is so, so dependent on this notion of the Father's love. So we've been hammering on that. And then last week we talked about protecting that love. Not that the love needs to be protected, but our notion of it, our understanding of it, needs to constantly be tended because we will always be sliding back into conditional forms of love as we understand it. And so we went through a couple of passages of Paul that seem to be flying in the face of a love like this. And there's difficult passages throughout the Bible that we need to deal with. How do we deal with those? So we thought maybe what a good thing to do would be to continue on that vein, but I'm going to have to take a break and do something else today. Because you know what's coming, right? I can't believe that it's already Lent. Lent is starting on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. It's unbelievable. Of course, I think Easter is, what, three and a half weeks sooner this year than it was last year. Because Easter's always bouncing around. It's not a set time. It's based on a very complicated calculation. And so this Wednesday, the 14th, Valentine's Day, I mean, could we pack anything more on on Wednesday, uh, is, is the beginning of Lent. And so I thought what would be really good for us to do is to talk about Lent a little bit. We are not a liturgical church. How many of you grew up in a liturgical church? Catholic church, Episcopalian, High Methodist, Lutheran. Okay, so there's a few of you here. <laughs> a little straggler over here, Mike. Uh, and so you know something about Lent, but the way that Lent was taught to us, the way that we practice Lent was so different than the way that I want to try to present it to you this morning. Through the lens of this Hebrew Jesus, what would and what can we understand about Lent if we look at it through that point of view? Now, what it's going to require from us is to open our minds up. It's going to require from us the same thing that we've been talking about so much in terms of letting go of things that we think we know, things that we don't even realize are in there and working us. That stuff we learned as kids about Lent and the attitudes that we had to it are still down there deeply seated in the subconscious and working us in ways that we're not even aware of as we choose, as we have emotional triggers, all these things that are happening to us. How do we start to understand a different way? You know, it's funny because the answer or the principles that I'm talking about 
are coming from so many different directions. We've got to pay attention because they're there. Marion sent me uh, an article uh, earlier in the week. Uh, it was about a billionaire who's now written a book about the principles of his success. So this is coming from a business point of view. But I wanted to read a little bit of this article because I think it, it just fits in so perfectly with everything we're talking about. And I love when science or business or other unrelated disciplines come to the same conclusion that we come to spiritually, the same conclusion that Jesus is bringing us to and has been for the last 2,000 years. So just listen to this. Um, a self-made billionaire reveals the mental hurdle, the main mental hurdle that you must overcome to reach your potential. Okay, y'all hooked so far? Billionaire Ray Dalio founded Bridgewater, one of the world's largest and best-performing hedge funds. A true entrepreneurial success story, Dalio started his company in a two-bedroom apartment. He was a self-described ordinary kid and worse than ordinary student. 42 years after starting his company, he reveals the one roadblock to success that is so ingrained in the human experience and in our DNA, it's difficult to overcome. Dalio's advice, be radically open-minded. I like that. Radically open-minded. He says, good decisions aren't necessarily the ones that stoke your ego. A good decision is what's best for you and your company. To make good decisions, a person must have the ability to explore different points of view and different possibilities, regardless of whether it hurts your ego. Ask any of your friends or any entrepreneur if he or she is open-minded, and most, if not all, will say that they are. But are they? According to Dalio, here are some cues that will tell you if you're truly open-minded. Okay, you ready? Close-minded people don't want their ideas challenged. Open-minded people are not angry when someone disagrees. Think about that for a second. One of the qualities that we say is the goal of the spiritual life is to become completely unoffendable. How often are we offended? What triggers us? When someone comes against us or disagrees, how do we react? We would like to think of ourselves as open-minded, but are we really? It's a good test. Closed-minded people are most likely to make statements than ask questions. There was that scene in a movie where a man and a woman are talking, and she asked the man, when you're having a conversation, are you really listening or just waiting to speak? <laughs> and after a pause, he says, you know, I'd like to say I'm listening, but really I'm just waiting to speak. A closed-minded person is making statements, pronouncements, rather than asking questions. Open-minded people genuinely believe they could be wrong. Wow, what a concept. You know? We talk about that in here all the time. We reserve the right to be wrong. We're presenting you by our best lights what we believe is true, what we become convinced of. I present things to you up here that I've seen at least in two other, three other sources so that I know at least there's an average in here. But it could be wrong. That's why you all need to always be taking what you need and leaving the rest. But think about yourself. Do you ask questions? Do you really want to hear another person's opinion? Do you think maybe you could be wrong? Closed-minded people focus much more on being understood than understanding others. Reminds me of the St. Francis prayer, right? Open-minded people always feel compelled to see things through other people's eyes. Closed-minded people lack a deep sense of humility. Open-minded people approach everything with a sense they may be wrong. Wow. 
Dalio believes that recognizing these traits in yourself is just the first step. The second step is recognizing them in others. Although it might be easier to do it the other way around, right? You see others. Once you do, then surround yourself with open-minded people, he says. Dalio offers several recommendations to help you develop the habit of being radically open-minded. Among them, sincerely believe that you might not know the best possible path. Dalio says that recognizing what you don't know is more important than whatever it is you know for sure. Wow. Just put that one on your fridge if you can remember it, you know. (laughs) Uh, Believe that you might not know the best possible path. That recognizing what you don't know is more important than whatever it is you know for sure. In other words, hold lightly to your beliefs. Do you believe what you believed five years ago, ten years ago, exactly? I hope not. I hope that your, your knowledge is, is, a, is an ever-expanding and moving front, that you're open to new revelation from God, from others. You know? Maybe that's one way to find out if you're open or closed-minded. You know? Are your beliefs static? Are they, are they set in stone? Or can they move and can they flex? And are you taking in new information? Recognize that decision-making is a two-step process. First, take in all the relevant information and then decide. People are reluctant to consider information that is inconsistent with their worldview or the conclusion they've already arrived at. Ever had a political discussion with someone? Case in point, right? Two sides, entrenched. They're not going to budge. They're not hearing what each other's saying. It's just a deflection off force fields and a restatement time and time again of the same premise without ever having heard or been budged by whatever anyone else is saying or facts on the ground. And of course, religions go into that same sort of of stance, don't they? Where nothing new is being learned. Remember that you're looking for the best answer, not simply the best answer that you can come up with yourself. How about that one? The best answer not what you can come up with. When two people disagree, there's a good chance that one of them is wrong. What if it's you? (laughs) Uh, If you're too proud of what you know, you will learn less, make inferior decisions, and fall short of your potential. You know, again, I love when other disciplines come to the same conclusions that we have already arrived at, that Jesus arrived at millennia ago. Everything he's saying here comes right out of the Beatitudes. Are you hearing that? You know, Blessed are those who are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. All of these qualities that Jesus is talking about, and of course, poor in spirit is hard for us. It's, a, it's an idiom, but it means the attitude of poverty even if you're rich. It means seeing each other as equal, not more, not less, but equal. Everything that Jesus said then, he's putting into a business perspective now. But truth is truth. And if we're open to it, we're going to see it from whatever direction it comes and not just from where we expect it to be. That is a person who has the potential to grow. Now, how do we apply this to Lent? What is it that we can do here when we're trying to look at Lent? What do we know about Lent, first of all? What does Lent even mean? It's kind of a weird word, Lent. Where does that come from? Actually, it comes from the Old English. There's an Old English word called Lenten, which meant the spring 
time, spring period, or spring season, because Easter and Lent always follow in the spring, right? It's a 40-day preparation for Easter, and this was set up by the church, you know, obviously millennia ago. As early as the mid-2nd century, there's writings that are talking about this 40-day period of preparation before Lent. And of course, 40 is such an important number to the, to the scriptures and to the church. It's not a literal number as it's typically used when you find it in scripture. It comes from the idea that each number had a meaning in, in, the, in the Hebrew lexicon. And that you could take these numbers and you could actually factor these numbers. So five times eight. Five is the number of man or the number of initiation. Eight is the number of rebirth. Eight times five is 40. And so what you get is a time of trial and testing for mankind, for people, to move into a rebirth. Wherever you see that 40, that's what you're seeing. Moses spends 40 days on top of Mount Sinai. He comes back with his hair whitened by what he has seen of God. Elijah spends 40 days on Mount Horeb. He is changed. Noah spends 40 days in the ark. He is changed. Jonah spends 40 days talking to Nineveh. They are changed. 40, 40, 40. And Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, right? He comes back changed. His own hometown people can barely recognize him. Isn't this Joseph and Mary's son, the carpenter's son? You know, they're, they're trying to figure it out. His family thinks he's crazy. They want to take him away and actually put him in a home someplace. You know, you probably don't realize that's in there, but they think he's out of his mind when he comes back. He spends 40 days in in that place. He spends 40 hours in the tomb between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And he spends 40 days as an ascended Lord before he is as a resurrected Lord before he ascends. And so this 40-ness keeps coming through. The church uses this number as this time of deprivation, trial, testing, into a rebirth. And as early as the mid-2nd century, it's being established. It's firmly established by the 4th century in church practice throughout the Mediterranean and into Europe. And it moved from whenever it started before to a Wednesday start by Pope Gregory in the 7th century, And so now we have the start of Lent on Wednesday, what becomes Ash Wednesday. And now if you count from Ash Wednesday to Easter, you actually get 46 days. So what about that? Doesn't that mess up everything? (laughs) Because they don't count the Sundays, all right? Sundays are the remembrances of Jesus' resurrection, and so no fasting occurred on Sundays. And so you still get 40 days of actual fasting, actual preparation. And so Ash Wednesday then becomes this day, part of the liturgical year, which is a cycle of rituals, a cycle of ceremonies, a cycle of readings that the church applies in order to take us on a journey on on an annual basis, on a cyclical basis. So our cycle of Lent is going to begin this week, actually with Shrove Tuesday. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, Shrove Tuesday, all right? a.k.a. also known as Pancake Day, yeah? or Fat Tuesday, and in French it's Mardi Gras. All right. So what is this Shrove Tuesday? What's the idea here? Shrive in, in Old English means to absolve. It means to hear confession, to assign a penance, and to absolve you from your sins. And so as early as a thousand years ago, Tuesday was understood as the day of absolution, the day that you would go to confession, the day of self-examination, 
you know, that you would become aware of wrongs that you had to repent and areas of growth that you needed, all right? A bell would be, would be rung in the town square between 11 and noon as a call to church, a call to confession, and all the people would come from whatever they were doing on Shrove Tuesday and go to their confession. And as early as 1600 or so in England, this bell became known as the pancake bell. <laughs> Why pancakes? Because it was also a call, a reminder to use up all your fatty foods, to use up all your animal products, because this was the last day that you could eat them. Because starting on Wednesday, no animal products were allowed. All right? So think about it. Your milk, your eggs, your butter, right? What are you going to do with all that stuff? Sounds like pancakes to me. So they would make pancakes, tons of pancakes. There is a story from 1445 of, uh, of a woman in Olney in, in England who was so busy making her pancakes that all of a sudden the bell rang and she realized she was late for church. So she ran out of the house still with her frying pan and still flipping the pancakes so that they wouldn't burn on the pan. To this day, there are pancake races all over England, but especially in Olney, where the, the whole point of the race is you have to run the, this designated course through the, the town flipping pancakes, and you can't drop the pancake. If you drop the pancake, you're out. And so it's now it's a pancake race on Shrove Tuesday. It, I, I don't know about you. It's fascinating to me how these traditions get started, where they come from and where they end up. I mean, here we are having pancake races with something that started as Shrove Tuesday and, and, and fasting you know, for the people throughout Lent. And it's just, it, I don't know. It may just me be me geeking out, but that's what I love to do. Ah, so it's the last day to gorge. It's the last day to eat all the fatty foods before you have to go into, um, into uh, Lent. And it, starting with Wednesday... The ancient, or I should say in the Middle Ages, the the tradition was that you only ate one meal when you were fasting. It was toward evening, and it couldn't contain any meat, any fish, any animal products of any kind. And that was your fast. That was the way that you you showed your penance and, and did what you're supposed to do. So Ash Wednesday is the first day of Lent. It is this fast day. Ashes were, have always been the ancient symbol of desolation, the ancient symbol of mourning. Um, you will hear about sackcloths and ashes if you read through the Old Testament. That was a way to show that you're mourning. You put on the coarse cloth, you poured ashes on your head. And so the ashes um, are now being used here as a sign of desolation, this sign of going into this repentance. And initially the church actually poured the ashes on your head. Aren't you glad they moved to a cross on the forehead after a while so you didn't have to wash that stuff out of your hair? Where do the ashes come from, you ask? Wasn't that a burning question that you had? Probably not. I know. I ask these questions because that's who I am. But actually, the ashes were the previous year's palm branches from Palm Sunday that were dried out and burned and blessed and then held for Ash Wednesday. And so that's where the ashes come from. Vatican II changed the, the words that were said as the priest was giving the ashes to the penitent. Originally, it was, remember that you came from dust, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's from Genesis 3. And then Vatican II changed it to repent and believe in the gospel. But the idea was kind of the same, this idea of humility, of coming back down to realizing your own impermanence, realizing your, your, your limitations in life. And so this symbol of repentance 
was this dedication now to prepare for a new life in this 40-day period. Lent was meant to mirror Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. And we talked about that 40 symbolism. It's so important to understand this 40-ness of what is going on. Jesus went into the wilderness. What he did there is what Paul describes as a kenosis in Greek. There was a kenosis as Jesus was born into the world. There was a second emptying, which is what kenosis means, an emptying, a pouring out in the wilderness. As he went out into the silence, went out into the nothingness, experienced suffering, experienced exhaustion, experienced hunger, kind of went out into that space. Let's just read a little bit from uh, Mark first. Mark is going to be the short rendition, starting at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And then immediately, notice the words here, immediately the spirit impelled him to go out. Ekbalo in, in Greek, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very aggressive word to force out, to push out. The Spirit impels Jesus to go out into the wilderness. He was feeling this need, this deep need that was compelling him, impelling him. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And that word at hand really means has already arrived in Aramaic. And it can mean that in Greek as well. Repent and believe in the gospel. So you see where Vatican II took that line, repent and believe in the gospel, connected to this 40 days. And so this is how Ash Wednesday, repent and believe in the gospel, connects. Matthew, chapter 4, gives us an expanded version. Jesus was led up by the Spirit. We don't get the impelled, but same idea here. Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and say to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. At the pinnacle of the temple, he would have been facing the actual court of the Gentiles. And so his Falling down and rising up would have been visible to everybody. So you get a sense of what, where, where the devil's going with this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So there's things going on here, right? Henry Nouwen pointed out so beautifully in, in his book, The Way of the Desert, that this time for Jesus, these three temptations are symbolic also. Just as the number three is, is a symbolic number, it means completion. It means fulfillment. 
And so these three temptations are the fulfillment of all the temptations that we face as human beings. And you see this. This temptation to turn the stones into bread. Bowen says, is this drive, this need, this compulsion for us to be relevant in life? And what's more relevant than to make food out of inanimate objects? We need to be relevant. It's a human desire we have. To bow down and worship Satan in order to have control over all the kingdoms of the world is the need to be powerful. And to throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple to be seen by others as spectacular is the third need. To be relevant, to be powerful, to be spectacular. You can put them in different ways, but they really are the sum total of our driving forces in life, our needs for affection, esteem, for security. All those things wrapped up, control, are wrapped up there. And every time Jesus comes and hits one of these compulsions in himself and is tempted, he is at the ready with the scripture, with the words of his people that were ingrained to him deeply. And then he is able to just come forth with that and is able to move through. Remember, 40 is not a literal number. There are 18 unaccounted years in Jesus' life from age 12 to 30. It could have been a really long time. And I want you to think about for a second what Jesus did here in leaving home and family and job and village and community in order to go out. What impelled him? That word, impelled, is a strong word because what would it take for you to leave your home, your family, your job, to go out into a completely different place because your need for truth, your need for connection with that truth was so deep that there was nothing else that you could do. Then we tend to think of Jesus' life as being so different than ours, but in those early years, it really wasn't. By the time in, he's in his mid-twenties or whenever th- this, this story is supposed to take place in his life or his thirties, his father is probably dead. Joseph is probably dead. He's not spoken of in any of the New Testament beyond the infancy narratives. That means he's caring for his mother. He is the oldest of his siblings. And yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Scripture tells us that as well. What was he doing? He was minding the shop. He was making sure that the family had what they needed. Most likely, that's what any good son would be doing. He would be caring for the estate. He would be taking his father's place with his mother and with his brothers and sisters, his siblings. But at a certain point, when they got old enough and he had trained them and they were able to do the business and things were running, and this need, this desire was building him and building and building and building, it finally breaks through. He runs to his cousin to be baptized as a first step in the Jordan River because he's been following his cousin's ministry as he's been preaching and teaching through the area. And then a further push to go completely outside of everything he knows, everything that's familiar, everything that's comfortable, everything that had given him a sense of survival, a sense of identification, meaning, purpose, to leave all that behind, to go out into the silence, into the nothingness with the wild beasts, to try to find what is really true. You can't underestimate that kind of dedication to his father. It, it, we, we, I think we gloss over it. We don't, we don't think about it in our own terms. 
Think about what that would be like in your own life. Now, Jesus being Jesus, I believe he did this responsibly. Although, can you imagine his family's reaction? You're going to do what? What would your family tell you? You know, even if you had everything set up, you had the life insurance policy in place, you had everything going, you know, so that everybody's going to be taken care of. You're going to do what? Are you crazy, son? What's going on here? This is Jesus stepping out, moving into a kind of sensory deprivation. Now, over the years, the church has lost this sense of why we do this at Lent time. Why do we deprive ourselves? Why do we fast? And over the years, it became an end in itself. We do this because we're emulating Jesus. We do this because, I guess in some way, vicariously, passively, God is going to reimburse us. God is going to reward us for the things that we do here to deny ourselves now. There'll be some reward later on. There's, there's this, this, this kind of cause and effect that starts to take place in people's minds. And the suffering and the deprivation becomes an end in itself. But it was never that. It was always the means to another end. Here's Jesus willingly leaving behind everything that he knows, everything that is familiar and comfortable, and going into this kind of sensory deprivation, if you want to think of it that way, letting go of his familiar life, quieting all the noise, and trying to remove everything that he knows from his human life and has relied on in his life to experience whatever is left. And he doesn't necessarily know that at the outset. But whatever is left when you take everything else away, we're getting down to the bottom of the dog pile. Now we can see what is really true. But we have to clear it out. And he does. Temptation after temptation. Compulsion after compulsion. Stumbling block after stumbling block. Think about your own lives. What is really true? What is really real? Is it your job? Is it your career, a cause, your politics, your religion, family, your beliefs? We're swimming in all of this stuff. This is, the wor- this is the world in which we live. This is the life that we have chosen, or maybe was chosen for us in some ways. But what is really true? What can we say is true? What is really real, essential? What is our life and what is distraction? How do we know the difference? Lent is recognizing the fortiness of this dilemma that we have in front of us, of stripping away all that is going to distract us from truth. This 40-day period originally was a preparation for baptism in the very early church, a time of stripping away everything and preparing for new life, understanding that on the other side of this fortiness, on the other side of baptism, is the rebirth, is the resurrection. That's the way baptism was looked at. And there was this period, this 40-day period leading up to it of exactly this. Being born again is what lies on the other side of this 40, of this kenosis, of this emptying. I wanted to read a a little article that I I just love this. It's called Withering into the Truth by Parker J. Palmer. And first he quotes William Butler Yeats, if you're familiar with the famous English poet. Though leaves are many, the root is one. 
Though all the lying days of my youth, I'm sorry, through all the lying days of my youth, I swayed my leaves and flowers in the sun. Now may I wither into the truth. In a few days, I'll turn 78. When friends say they don't know what to give me for my birthday, I always respond with the same tired old joke they've heard from me before, which causes them to sigh and roll their eyes and change the subject. Here's a perk that comes with age. Repeat yourself so often that folks think you're getting dotty, when in fact you're fending off unwanted conversations. (laughs) Question, what do you give the man who has everything? Answer, penicillin. Yeah. He says, I don't need gifts of material nature, but I do need to remember a few things I've learned during my nearly eight decades on earth. Well, mostly on earth. So here's a collection of lessons I've learned. Actually, I'm just going to give you one. Here's one. The Yeats poem at the head of this column names something I don't want to forget. Actively embracing aging gives me a chance to move beyond the lying days of my youth and wither into the truth. If I resist the temptation to Botox my withering, of course, my youthful lies weren't intentional. I just didn't know enough about myself, the world, and the relation of the two to tell the truth. So what I said on those subjects, subjects came from my ego, a notorious liar. Coming to terms with the soul truth of who I am, of my complex and often confusing mix of darkness and light, has required my ego to shrivel up. And nothing shrivels a person better than age. That's what all those wrinkles are about. Whatever truthfulness I've achieved on this score comes not from a spiritual practice, but from having my ego so broken down and composted by life that eventually I had to yield and say, okay, I get it. I'm way less than perfect. I envy folks who come to personal truth via spiritual discipline. I call them contemplatives by intention. Me, I'm a contemplative by catastrophe. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) A contemplative by catastrophe. You know? This is something that we've talked about so often. Life eventually is going to wear you down and strip you down. Everything that you think you are, everything that you have placed your identity in, everything that you placed your reliance upon, right, that you are clinging to, eventually, one by one, little by little, is going to be taken from you. And at the moment of death, everything that it means to be a human being is going to be taken from us. That's why we fear death, because then what, right? If you... Just live your life without any thought to the deeper things, without any thought to the spiritual journey. Life will eventually wear you down and you will become a contemplative by catastrophe because everything will be gone. But wouldn't it be nice? Everybody break into song. Wouldn't it be nice if we became contemplatives by intention, bringing the bottom up to meet us, allowing ourselves to strip away systematically the things that are distracting the things that we suspect probably are not essential to life. Take layer after layer, body after body, off the dog pile until we get down to the bottom and see what's left. We can do that. And here at Lent is a perfect time and place. A 40-day period laid out by the church for millennia 
that we can plop down and we can use right now as a tool, as a little Petri dish to see what we can do. But if we're going to do that, we have to change our thoughts about Lent. It can't be the old childhood thing that I grew up with. I am giving up my candy bars. I'm giving up something that I really like, you know, because I'm a sinner, because I have to. The church is telling me I have to. The nun is telling me I have to, you know. And in some way, this is going to be good. In some way, this is going to be, a, you know, or I wasn't even thinking that. I just did it because I was told to. I just did what I was told. But to continue to look at Lent as giving up something pleasurable, as penance for sin, is really not going to get us anywhere because that's fear-based. And we're still looking at God in some sort of contractual way. What if we can turn that around and say, we're going to voluntarily give up things, strip away things that might be distracting to us to allow us to see more deeply what really matters, the connections that really do persist in our lives and who we really are as we move forward. See, this is the model that Jesus is giving us. We don't have to leave our jobs and we don't have to leave our families. This is an interior journey that we're taking here. So deeply attached to our lives as we're living them, we can take this interior journey where we start to let go. We start to strip away, both online and offline, both during the day and then in times of devotion and prayer. What I would encourage all of us to do, and take this next 40 days, starting with Wednesday. And you don't have to wait till Wednesday. You can start tonight. What the heck? Add six days to it all. The point is, voluntarily set aside time. Get up a half an hour earlier and spend some quiet time in, in devotional time. If you meditate, if you do centering prayer, if you read devotionally, if you just like to have a cup of coffee and sit and watch the shadows and the light play across the backyard and listen to the birds sing, whatever it, ha- whatever it is that you can do to start stripping away all the noise and when the thoughts come in, you let them go and you come back down to ground and you just spend that time, not expecting anything from it, just spend the time and see what comes from it whole different way of looking at it. There's not an outcome or a there out there we're trying to grab. We're just going to quiet down. We're just going to sit soul to soul, spirit to spirit with our God's presence and see what happens. Can we do that? Can we practice mindfulness? Did you get the mindfulness exercises in your interest? Okay. I would love to read through them all, but I don't have time. But I do want to I guess I don't have one. I was going to read through one of them. Can you give me one for a sec? This second one, mindful observation. Mindfulness is nothing more than being completely present to the moment as you go through the day. Your time offline of meditation, centering prayer, and quiet time is giving you the tools that you need to be able to do this all throughout the day. We've talked about this. This mindful observation, there's six of them here. What I would encourage you to do is to pick one and do one every day. You'll find ones you really like. You can do them over and over again. But sometime during the day, you're going to practice mindfulness. And hopefully you'll practice it more and more so that it becomes a seamless practice within your day. But mindful observation, this exercise is simple but incredibly powerful. It's designed to connect us with the beauty of the natural environment, something that is easily missed when we are rushing around in the car or hopping off and on trains on the way to work. 
Choose a natural object from within your immediate environment and focus on watching it for a minute or two. This could be a flower or an insect, clouds or the moon. Don't do anything except notice the thing that you are looking at. Relax into a harmony for as long as your concentration allows. Look at it as if you're seeing it for the very first time. Visually explore every aspect of its formation. Allow yourself to be consumed by its presence. Allow yourself to connect with its energy and its role and purpose in the natural world. And this probably sounds all really highfalutin and platitudinous and it's like, oh, come on. Really, you would be amazed. You would be amazed what this one thing can do. We rush around amid the most incredible things and we don't see them. Just trees and clouds and insects, just the face of the person that you're looking at, their eyes as they look back at you. If we really paid attention to these things, how would that change your day? You're having a terrible day, let's say. One thing can transport you, transfix you, rocket you in to a new understanding if you just let it. I love telling the story because when we were moving a year ago, Marion was having a really bad day. She was stuck doing all the packing and doing this and doing that. And it was this rainy day and it was just all kinds of pressures and things were, were piling on. And in the midst of one of her worst moments, she was in the bedroom and she's looking out the window and she sees something on the screen and she gets a little closer and she realizes it's a praying mantis who's hanging on to the screen from the outside. Okay, y'all know praying mantises, okay? They're kind of scary, guys, right? They got that triangle head, looks like an alien with the big eyes and everything, and then these guys. So there he is. And she gets closer, so she's like just, you know, a few inches from his face, and she's looking at him, and all of a sudden he does this. (laughs) The little cocker spaniel head turn, and then it's like, oh my gosh, he's actually there looking at me. It rocketed her rocketed her into the moment. And then, of course, she's looking at him, and then she yells for me, and then I come, and I'm looking at him. For the next three days, that guy just moved around the screen but didn't leave. We kept coming back time after time to go see if the mantis was still there, was still there. I'm telling you, and she can tell you, it transformed her whole day. One bug transformed her whole day. That bug can do it for you. It's anything, anything that we give our entire attention to, our entire presence to. Every one of these six is dealing with the same thing in a different way. You've got to do it, though. You can't just read through this and understand, have the cool story. You've got to experience it for yourself. This cannot be transferred to anyone by anyone else. It's something you need to actually do. Let yourself become that present. Spend that time, either in the morning or the evening, just quiet, just being. Find a place in Lent for you to go into that place where you strip away everything that is not necessary for this moment and just be as preparation for Holy Week, as preparation for the new life that resurrection represents for us. This completely new becoming into something else has to be preceded by a stripping away. This is the shape of the journey. This is what Jesus talks about when he talks about the sign of Jonah as being the only sign that he's going to give any of us is the descent before the ascent. Lent is the time of the descent. If we will use these 40 days, just simply, in some way, make a pact with yourself that you are going to do something that you can do 
Don't make it so high that you'll blow it after two days and let it go. But whatever it is you say that I can do, just do it. Find one of these that is interesting to you. Try it. If you like it, try it again and again and again. But let's see if we can make this Lent significant in terms of taking us someplace else, taking us deeper, showing us something about the nature of our Father that is going to prepare us for the resurrection. That's who we really are. But we won't know that until we spend this time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for these traditions. Thank you for millennia of church tradition, of trial and error, of symbol and ritual that has given us tools that we can use. Help us to see through the symbol and ritual to the intent behind the tool so that we can see how it really connects us to you. Keep us from just doing mindless ritual and and ceremonies and, and prayers that are not deeply connected to an awareness of how this is taking us toward you and your presence. But thank you for the tools that are available to us. Thank you for each other that we can become accountable to as we try to do things that are so difficult as in changing our own habits and habitual ways of looking at you and life and each other. We want to change, Father. We want to know you better. Help us in this Lent season to find a place that is closer to you each and every day. Father, we love you. We want to love you better. Help us to do that by experiencing your love for us. It's the only way we can do this. And thank you for never leaving or forsaking us and never letting us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, let's stand.